Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will be given at that time. If any wish to require operator assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, uh, uh, um, Amanda, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Connect workshop. So the program is for caregivers when your loved one has renal cell cancer. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And it really is because of that collaboration that we've been able to reach so many of you. Now, this is a two-part series. And um, today's program really is going to focus specifically on really uh, being prepared. And the title of today's workshop is Getting Prepared, Knowing When to Ask for Help. It's very hard often for caregivers to do this, so it's a very important topic for us to address today. Now, because of our collaboration with so many organizations and because of your interest in this topic, we have um, many of you on the call today. We have over 658 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States. And we also have international participants from Canada, Venezuela, Japan, and the United Kingdom. So it's truly an international call as well, and we really want to thank all of you for spending the next hour with us. Now, today's program was made possible with funding and support provided by Pfizer, and I really want to thank them for their amazing support of this two-part series. So there'll be a, two part, another, a second part to this on coping with the holidays. But today we're going to really focus on getting prepared, knowing when to ask for help. And we have wonderful speakers today, and I'm going to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Eric Jonash, Associate Professor of Medicine, Department of Genital Urinary Medical Oncology, Director VHL Clinical Center, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Jonash is going to address an overview of renal cell cancer, your important role as a caregiver in communicating with the healthcare team, and key questions to ask your healthcare team about renal cell cancer. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to Dr. Joan Ash. Thank you, Carolyn, and thank you all for uh, listening in today. So renal cell carcinoma affects approximately 61,000 individuals per year in the United States. And to put that into perspective, uh, Testicular cancer, which is the cancer that Lance Armstrong had, there's only about 9,000 cases of that. But lung cancer, breast cancer, and colon cancer, uh, there's about 200,000 cases of that. So this is clearly not the most common cancer, but it's an important healthcare problem. Individuals who are diagnosed with this cancer, about one-third of them will have had spread to other organs in the body at the time of first diagnosis. For the other two-thirds, where the kidney is the only place where this disease has initially manifested, surgery is really the mainstay even in 2015. And once that surgery has occurred and if there is no evidence of any disease spread to other organs in the body, careful observation with imaging studies, mainly CT scans, for a number of years is really the, the, the standard of care. We don't have any adjuvant therapy or, or prevention-type therapy after the kidney tumor has been removed that has demonstrated any benefit. We've looked at drugs like interferon and interleukin-2. We've also looked at drugs like Sutent and Nexavar. And these agents do not provide any benefit. So we do not recommend adjuvant therapy. Now, for those individuals who were first diagnosed with the cancer when it has already spread to other organs in the body, or for those individuals where it later spreads to other organs in the body, we have a slightly different 
approach there. If you have metastases to other organs in the body and the primary tumor is still in place, we often do what's called a cytoreductive nephrectomy or a surgical procedure to remove the kidney tumor itself. And then we consider what we call systemic therapy or, or treatment for the whole body, which will address the various areas where this cancer has spread to. In occasional cases, if the spread to other organs in the body is quite minimal, where, for example, there are one or two areas in the lung, uh, we may consider surgical removal of those. And if the spread to the organs is quite minimal and there's clear evidence that it's very slow growing, sometimes a period of observation. So although we see that it has spread, sometimes kidney cancer can grow very slowly and quite quietly, and we may observe individuals in that case, yeah. we um, if there is a, if if we consider starting systemic therapy, what we do in that case is uh, we consider three major classes of drugs. There are anti-angiogenic or blood vessel starving therapies, of which there are five that have been approved for kidney cancer, including Sutent, Votriant, Inlita, Nexavar, and Avastin plus interferon. There are mTOR inhibitors, uh, which include Toracel and Affinitor. And there are what I would call the old-fashioned immunotherapies like interleukin-2. Choosing these is, uh, requires a input from your, from your healthcare team with regards to what tumor subtype there is, clear cell being the most common, papillary being the second most common. That will influence the choice of treatment your what we call a risk score, where your, your doctors and team will look at various factors, including whether or not your calcium level, your hemoglobin level, your, your LDH levels, your white blood cell, your red blood cell count are, are in a normal or an abnormal range, which will give us an idea of the aggressivity of the disease. And once those various factors are taken into consideration, then the systemic therapy is given. Obviously, these systemic therapies all have a certain degree of side effects, and that's where the role of the caregiver is, becomes critical. As we know, uh, when we are in a room and we're receiving news, whether it's good or bad, sometimes it's hard to absorb all of that information. It's like when you're in a class and you're learning something, and the amount of information that is being handed to you is so large that it's something that you just can't keep in your head. And when you have the, the stress of, of being uh, diagnosed with cancer, that becomes even more difficult. So the caregiver is, is critical in all aspects of, of uh, the patient's uh, treatment. You need to, the caregivers are, are very important for listening at the time of the initial consultation and the follow-up visits with regards to the key things that the care team will try to talk about from, from a, a looking for side effects perspective, management of side effects perspective. When uh, the patient is, is receiving the medicines and is starting to develop any issues or side effects, often the caregiver is really going to be the person that notices it first and the, and the patient is either going to be reluctant or, or simply just not, not aware of, of the, um, the symptoms themselves. So, so caregivers are critically important. 
Obviously, um, emotional health is as important as physical health when you're receiving treatment for for kidney cancer or any other cancer, and and communicating, not not tattletaling, but in a, in, a, in an open and and um, um, sort of permissive manner, communicating with the healthcare team about emotional health of the patient is critical as well. So the key questions you really want to ask the healthcare team about renal cell carcinoma are: What stage of cancer are we dealing with? Is it a stage one, two, three, or four? One through three being not metastatic, four being metastatic. What kind of kidney cancer is this? Is this clear cell papillary chromophobe? If it has spread to other places in the body, what's the prognosis? What, uh, what are, is the life expectancy? It's a difficult question to ask, but it is really, I think, an important question to ask to allow planning for, for the future. And, and also, what are the types of side effects that uh, one can expect from any of the treatments, be it surgery or of the kidney, surgery for nodules elsewhere in the body, any other interventions, or the, um, the systemic therapies. And the other thing, of course, is what can be done about any of the side effects. What are the measures? For example, a lot of the drugs we give cause diarrhea. Uh, are there measures that can help with the diarrhea? And the answer is absolutely yes. And I guess the last question then is, what's new on the horizon? And it's pretty clear that in kidney cancer, several new drugs are on the horizon. There were two studies, one looking at nivolumab or Updivo, which is a new immunotherapy in individuals who have been on prior treatment, as well as another drug called Cometric or Cabozantinib, both very exciting drugs. Uh, clinical studies have already been reported in the top journal, the New England Journal of Medicine, and may become available for patients with kidney cancer uh, with metastases at some point in the next half year or so. So in summary, kidney cancer is a disease that affects approximately 61,000 people per year. Around one-third of individuals will present with spread to other organs in the body. In that situation, surgery to remove the primary tumor may be appropriate, followed by treatment with either immune-based, anti-angiogenic, or mTOR inhibitors. And the caregiver is critical in ensuring that the right things are done for the patient, that side effects are managed, and that the right decisions are made for overall care. So I wanted to thank everyone for, for listening, and I'll hand it back to, to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Jonas. What a wonderful introduction to the call and lots of information for people to absorb. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. And um, our next speaker is Dr. Uh, Guadalupe or Dr. Lupe Palos. Dr. Palos is really her own healthcare team. She's a nurse, she's a social worker, and she's a doctor of public health. She's clinical research manager, division of medical affairs, Department of Cancer Survivorship, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Palos is going to address becoming a prepared caregiver, asking for help with care coordination, keeping track of important papers and appointments, and using technology as a tool, computer, tablet, and phone numbers. So it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Palos. Thank you for that kind introduction, Dr. Messner. It's a pleasure to be here today and join my colleagues in discussing the experience of caregivers. We just heard an excellent summary of renal cancer, and also remind, we were reminded of the importance of maintaining patient-centered communication, which also includes the caregiver. 
now would like to continue this dialogue with information about caregiver issues. Many of us on this call today have cared for someone during an illness or recovery from a surgery. Generally, this type of caregiving experience is short-term. It has a finite beginning and ending. Yet many of you in our audience today may be in the midst of a different type of caregiving experience, an experience that begins when a loved one is told they have renal cancer. Some of you may just be beginning this experience, and a few of you have been in this role for a number of years. So what do I mean when I say caregiver and who is a caregiver? That term can be confusing at times. To some, it may mean the healthcare provider caring for their loved ones. For others, it's a relative or friend who provides a wide range of unpaid care to those in need of such care. This type of caregiver is often referred to as an informal caregiver, but don't let that informal label mislead you. Being a caregiver means that a person is providing physical care, emotional support, and helping their loved ones successfully manage their disease. And that is the definition we're going to use during this call. Being a caregiver can be a lifetime commitment. With all the advances that we're making in screening, prevention, and treatment, many individuals diagnosed with cancer today are living longer lives. In fact, the number of cancer survivors has increased so dramatically that cancer is now considered a chronic disease. So cancer as a chronic disease has a significant impact on a caregiver. Why? Because as the survivorship period extends, often for years, the needs of a person diagnosed with cancer will differ over the course of their disease, and the health of a caregiver will also change. In the next few moments, I'm going to share some tips on how to prepare oneself to be a caregiver and to recognize the importance of asking for help. I will also describe different strategies that may help a patient and their caregiver keep track of important documents, appointments, and medications. As we all know, it's a struggle to keep up with schedules of appointments, medications, and day-to-day -day details. Trying to keep track of all of this information in addition to working and caring for children can be challenging for everyone. So much at times that many, report, many caregivers have told me that they feel like they're juggling several balls in the air and they worry about the consequences of dropping one of those balls. And yes, it is a challenge to juggle all those balls at one time. So here's a statement that I wanted to share with you that was made by a caregiver of a patient diagnosed with renal cancer. How can you expect us to keep track of all the appointments, all the correspondence from the health team, the medications, the times to take them, and what they're used for? And on top of that, I'm taking my own meds, meds for my high blood pressure, my arthritis. It's impossible. Is this true? Is it impossible to find ways to deal with these issues or to, to, or, you know, to try to plan ahead when travel is coming? I'm positive that many of you listening on this call know exactly what this caregiver was talking about because you have been in these types of situations. But with preparation, planning, and preventive action, this experience can be turned into an opportunity to develop new strategies to deal with these challenges. So a question many of you may have by now is, okay, I know about these struggles, but tell me how to deal with them so we can get back on track. First, recognize the importance of coordinating care among all the members of the health team. That is the oncologist, your primary care provider, your urologist, and when and if needed, the surgeon, radiologist, nutritionist, and a key team member, the social worker. Each individual member of the team brings their own clinical expertise, knowledge, and experience. Think of the team as a puzzle. When the puzzle is first spread on the table, it seems to be out of order with no form to it. But as the pieces of that puzzle come together, it becomes clearer that there's order and form. And in the end, the puzzle has a message. The pieces form one. 
That is the outcome we wish to achieve with our coordination of care. Form one team that includes the patient, the caregiver, and the healthcare providers. This type of communication is sometimes easier during the treatment phase because you interact with your team on a regular basis. But what happens after the treatment phase? What happens when the team is not so readily available? That's a legitimate concern. So one solution is to partner with your social worker and make a plan before being discharged or the treatment ends. In that plan, identify contacts or, refer, or make a referral list of individuals in your community who can help you. Also, ask the social worker to help you identify individuals from your team or institution who may be available for questions once the treatment is over. Second, as a social worker and nurse, I learned the benefits of scheduling regular family conferences, which included the patient, key family members, and healthcare team members. The benefits including giving family members and the patient and providers and opportunities to meet each other face-to-face -face and to communicate in person about the patient's condition, treatment, or prognosis. Third, learn the importance of planning ahead of time for appointments, keeping important papers handy, and making sure medications are taken when scheduled. So how can we plan ahead of time? What methods keep track of appointments, medications, or important papers? Let's begin with keeping track of schedules. There are many different ways to keep track of a schedule, and it really depends on a person's preference for learning. Some people prefer information to be written on a paper. Others prefer a visual method such as color coding or some other type of visual trigger that can be easily seen. Others prefer to use their tech tools or toys, and some prefer a combination of some or all. So let me give you an example of what one family did. They had a family member who was having uh, difficulty with uh, symptom management. We had a family meeting that included all the children that this uh, family had, that the couple had, as well as the grandchildren. As we went through the family care conference, it was obvious that everybody respected and loved this family member very much. And what we saw then was something that was that puzzle coming together. We saw all the family thinking about ways that they could help their loved ones deal with this whole process. So the children came up with the idea of color coding things. They said, well, let's make a, a poster with all the medications and we'll put colors with them and put those colors also on the pills. So that poster then stayed in the room of that individual and it was a nice visual trigger for people to look at and to know what medication was given for pain, which one for constipation, which one for nausea, and so on. And, so, and it was something that everyone had participated in. So that's one type of, of written, uh, written aid that you can use. Another is to develop a master calendar. Take a calendar for the week or the month or the years, write down all the appointments, times, and locations, and keep that master calendar in a location that is easily access accessible to everyone. That's what this family did also. They had their poster and their calendar. Whole caregiver meetings, again, remember your loved one's needs change over time, and that's a good time to spend uh, time talking about the changes in the roles, responsibilities, and assignments. So for those of you who are techie savvy, here's a few suggestions. Use social media to communicate important appointments or other types of business with your caregiver team. You can use the internet to communicate about needs. Um, there are also apps that can uh, help you or send you alerts for medications and other important due dates. Set up alarms on electronic devices, your phone, computer, or iPad. Use the repeat feature when needed. Code your alarms by the intent. 
For example, you can use bells for medications, cars for appointments. Have your pharmacy send you telephone alerts for medication refills. And then let's talk about how to keep important papers together. One way is to put all the documents together in a large notebook. But often these notebooks can turn into volumes. So you can instead scan them and store them in a cloud database, on your computer, or even on a removable hard drive. Just be sure that others in your family know how to access those records. So a question that caregivers often ask is, how can I get others to help me with my caregiving activities? So you may wish to widen your, your network of people to ask. Ask your neighbors, people from your community, your place of worship, or even include your grandparents, siblings, and cousins, aunts, just folks like that. People like to help, and if given a chance, most likely they'll say yes. This expanded network of circle of caregivers will help the caregiver lessen that burden, and your loved one, who is the patient, will benefit because they will have a happier and healthier caregiver and also have other folks to interact with. Also take time to learn about resources that are available to you before a crisis hits. My colleague, Ms. Carly O'Brien, will provide some information on resources in just a few moments. In closing, I want to remind you that caregiver and caregiving can cause a condition referred to as caregiver burden or burnout. Recently, a great deal of attention has focused on the risks to a caregiver's physical and emotional health. It also has an impact on the outcomes of the patient they are caring for. So caregiver burden is a growing public health concern. It can affect the entire family. It has a domino effect. This issue has become such a concern that November is designated as National Family Caregiver Month. So remember, be kind to your caregiver, and if you are the caregiver, take time for yourself. Thank you, and this concludes my remarks. Thank you so much, Dr. Palos. That was really extraordinary and just very helpful. And I know there'll be there's just a lot of issues that you raise that are just so important for people to know about. So thank you so much. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bairden. Ms. Bairden is Supervisor of Clinical Nutrition, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Ms. Bairden is going to address nutritional concerns and tips. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Bairden. Hi, um, thank you, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation addressing nutritional concerns in the presence of renal cancer. My goal is to discuss tips for managing side effects that can impact your nutrition. Eating well during your treatment can provide the energy to do the things you enjoy as well as maintaining your weight, lean muscle mass, um, potentially tolerating your treatment better, and faster recovery. Excessive weight loss can cause treatment delays, breaks in treatment, and even slow healing process. The, the healing process, so um, be in touch with your team if you're running into challenges um, with getting enough nutrition in. A few common side effects that patients experience um, include nausea, vomiting, a decrease in appetite, taste changes, mouth sores, diarrhea, constipation, and fatigue. These all may pose barriers to meeting nutritional goals. So I want to go ahead and discuss some suggestions on how um, to consider potentially addressing some of these experiences if you, um, if you are faced with them. 
Oftentimes, nausea is a result of not taking medication as directed. So the first thing is reinforcing to patients to take medication as the physician has directed, and that can be the first line of response. Now, oftentimes, um, making some changes to the diet can also be helpful. So things like smells, um, textures, um, even the amount of food a patient's eating can um, result in the patient experiencing nausea. So some um, helpful tips would be foods carrying less odor. Um, foods that are bland um, without the strong smells um, associated with it, with it, with them, or even the strong taste. Um, dry crackers, toast, um, avoiding overly sweetened foods. A lot of times that can set patients um, into feeling nauseated. Foods that are fried and greasy, even highly seasoned, um, can be really challenging for patients to tolerate. I always remind patients you know, if you're kind of um, in the mindset of getting over the flu, things that you would slowly bring back into your diet, treat the nausea in a similar way, and um, finding foods that aren't as um, intense can really help um, alleviate some of that reaction. A lot of times what happens with patients is the nausea results in a decrease in appetite and then intake, which can um, eventually um, result in weight loss. And so avoiding that is what we want to try and do. So if we notice that the patients are nauseated and things aren't helping, we want to go ahead and really start um, stepping in at that point. So small frequent meals can be useful in not overloading the patient's um, digestive system, not having them feel overwhelmed, um, focusing on those foods that are, in, are higher in calories and higher in proteins, um, eliminating stress at meals, and even whatever the patient can do exercise-wise can also make a big difference. Um, when we get up and we move, that helps with digestion. And it also helps relieve stress. So exercising can be something um, that a lot of folks don't think about, but that can be a really helpful tool. Now, when we're looking at renal um, cancer, one thing we do want to focus on is um, the special needs of those patients. And oftentimes, um, there might be some spe special restrictions. Um, for example, um, reduction in protein. So when we're talking about high-calorie, high-protein foods, talk with your healthcare team if there are any um, guidelines that you need to consider when, um, when putting together these, these food selections. So get with your dietitian. They can give you suggestions on foods to focus on and staying within those recommendations. Another possible side effect patients can experience is um, taste change. And this is a real unique um, experience patients can go through, and so it's very important that you're communicating with the team. And as a uh, healthcare provider, as a family member, as a caretaker, um, you want to be able and provide foods that are going to work for the patient and not set them into um, being frustrated or um, getting a bad taste to where they're just um, warding off eating anything for a period of time. A couple of things we can try and do with taste changes is we need to understand what's going on. Are they having no taste at all? Is it bland? Um, do things taste salty or sweet? Is there a metallic taste? There's a lot of different experiences that can happen, so being able to 
you know, really put your finger on what's going on can really make a difference in the uh, overall um, implementation process of what we can do with the plan. So oral hygiene is one way that we can start just by cleansing that palate. Rinsing your mouth with water um, with a little bit of baking soda can help cleanse that palate and hopefully reset everything so when you go to eat, you're actually tasting what you're eating and, and maybe that bad taste will, will have been subdued. Um, other things can happen um, as a result of medication. So um, a metallic taste can, can come and go. So we can discuss things like using plastic utensils, um, drinking from a glass rather than any um, can, removing foods that are, that are in cans and just focusing on um, frozen or fresh. Um, because those foods can, can carry some of that flavor with them. And even the pans you're cooking in, you know, the skillet and that sort of thing, um, we, we need to look at that because that can even bring some of the flavors um, out for the patient. Uh, things that really tend to taste like they're supposed to, even despite all of this that's going on, are foods that are tart and those that are citrus. Whenever we're working with patients who are challenged, a lot of suggestions um, that you know tend to work really well are, you know, why don't we try a marmalade on that? Or what about you know using a barbecue sauce to cover that so you're really tasting um, the the um, coating rather than just the food, and that kind of helps patients um, with their intake and makes eating a little bit more pleasurable. The next um, side effect that can be quite common are mouth sores. And these can be very painful. Um, there's medications that doctors can give. There's a rinse um, that can help numb the mouth. But choosing your foods are very, very critical with this. So work with your team. Um, traditionally, we encourage very soft and moist foods that are easy to chew and swallow. Cutting your foods into small pieces, that can really make a difference because we don't think about it. But as we chew, we really move that bolus around, and it can be irritating. Um, you know, to those, those parts of the mouth that might be inflamed. Um, salty foods can be very um, painful as well, foods that are acidic. Um, so these are things to consider. Going more towards bland foods again, small bites, well um, uh, moist, you know, with maybe a sauce or a gravy on it, um, really something tender to be in the mouth so it, it won't be uncomfortable for the patient. Another thing, drink fluids with your meal. Keep that fluid going so that um, it doesn't dry out. A lot of times mouth sores are becoming, can become more dis, um, discomforting whenever your mouth is very dry. So um, drinking with your meals is an important thing to, to remember. Now, a change in bowel function can happen for a lot of reasons. Pain medication, anti-nausea medication, even the, the drugs to treat the cancer themselves can sometimes alter our bowel function. And so um, whether you're having constipation or diarrhea, talk with your healthcare team. A lot of times they're going to want you to take um, a medication and to address this. You can also talk with your dietitian. Now, um, along with proteins, sometimes electrolytes and fluid can be something to consider whenever you are dealing with the kidney. Not everybody has to go through um, a restriction, but it's important to know where you stand in that spectrum. And so um, getting enough fluid in is very important, but only if your doctor um, hasn't 
hasn't needed to put you on a restriction for that. So communicating with your healthcare team about the challenges you're facing are very important. Number one, to address them quickly, but to address them correctly so that um, that you don't um, have further complications or, or side effects from, from maybe what you thought would be the best way um, to address it. And lastly, I'd like to touch on fatigue. Fatigue is something that can be experienced for a number of reasons. We get fatigued from stress. We get from fatigued from dehydration. Sometimes the medication, you know, the chemo fatigue can really set in with patients. Um, so there's a lot of reasons for fatigue to be there. And talking with your doctor um, to, to discuss you know, the side effects of the medication, um, how that's impacting things. You can also talk with your dietitian about this. Um, it can be, are you getting enough calories in? Are you getting enough fluid in? Are you taking in the fluid that is appropriate for what your needs are? Those are all sorts of things to consider. But the sooner you address these issues, the better. And um, that's really the goal, is your quality of life, even during your treatment, before and after. So um, please reach out to your, your healthcare team to help support you during this time. I hope this has been helpful, and this concludes my thoughts. I'm going to hand it back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Burden. That was really wonderful and very helpful, um, very helpful tips for people to think about. Um, eating is such an important uh, back part of our lives and an important social part of our lives as well. So all of your tips are so helpful to people. So thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Carly O'Brien. Ms. O'Brien is our Caregiver Program Coordinator at Cancer Care, and she's an oncology social worker. And um, Ms. O'Brien is going to address um, Don't Try to Do It All, Know Your Limitations, Suggestions on How to Ask Family, Friends, and Others to Help, and Resources for Caregivers. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. O'Brien. Thank you very much, Carolyn. I'm very happy to be on this call today. I really want to take a little bit of time to hone in on what caregivers can do to manage their needs and also to mitigate or prevent some of those feelings of burnout that Dr. Palos mentioned earlier. I think a lot of you on the line probably know that caregivers tend to place very high expectations on themselves and often think that they can do it all. Much of the time they take on a lot of responsibility, even if it's not required, because of that internal pressure that they feel to quote unquote do things right. But taking on too much can leave you feeling exhausted, overwhelmed, angry, and even resentful. And in the end, it usually prevents your loved one from getting what they need. Remember that saying that you've got to care for yourself first before you can be a good caregiver for somebody else? It's very much true, and sometimes that self-care means recognizing your limits and knowing when to hit the brakes a bit. Knowing your limitations is a crucial part of being a caregiver. I'd encourage caregivers to listen to their bodies. Our bodies often give you a little red flag that can tell you when you're overwhelmed. For some people, it's tension in your shoulders. For other people, it's increased irritability. For some, it's feeling quite fatigued even when you've gotten ample sleep. Those signs or signals can be reminders that maybe your plate's getting a little too full. At that point, exploring opportunities to reprioritize and delegate can be quite a relief. Remember that there are only so many hours in a day. Feel free to say no when people ask you to take on tasks that you don't have the time or energy to complete. Sometimes that's about figuring out a polite way to say no and exercise that right when it's what makes the most sense for you. 
oftentimes people don't want to say no for fear of what it will say about them or think that it's not nice to say no. But saying no or setting a boundary in a gentle but firm way can really be in your best interest. Taking a pass on certain things can mitigate feelings of distress and resentment. So in turn, it can also ensure that your loved one is getting what they need from you. When it comes to asking for help, um, we know that's certainly not an easy thing for many people, but asking for help can be especially helpful during the course of caregiving. While caregivers tend to take on lots of responsibilities, they certainly can't do it alone. It's important to remember that asking for help is not a sign of weakness and does not indicate that you can't handle things on your own. It's actually quite the opposite. Asking for help takes courage. It's a sign of strength. And it helps both you and your loved one to get your needs met in a realistic and helpful, helpful and healthy way. Thinking about your own needs as a caregiver is often the first step in being able to ask for help. Consider which responsibilities you feel comfortable passing along to someone else and which are the most important for you to maintain. Oftentimes the easiest tasks to delegate are the practical ones. Be specific about the kind of help that you need and keep records of who is handling what task. As many of my colleagues mentioned earlier, organization is really helpful, so make sure to keep track of who's doing what. Another tip is to try giving a few options for specific tasks that might be helpful, like driving your loved one to treatment, picking the kids up from school, or dropping off a meal once a week. Giving several choices to potential helpers allows them some choice in what they feel they can manage, and that often makes them more likely to accept. Delegating these things can give you some much-needed respite without sacrificing you or your loved one's needs. It may also be helpful to think about the different people you have in your life and consider what their strengths and abilities are. You might have one friend who's a great cook or another who works near your loved one's treatment center. Those might be the friends who you ask to help with dinner prep or transportation to treatment. It's also important to acknowledge that with any support system, there are likely some people you might be more comfortable asking outright for help, while you may want to wait for an offer from others. Reaching out to family, friends, and community resources can go a long way, not just for you, but for your loved one, um, and also to the person who you're asking for help from. While many caregivers worry about being a burden to others, it's important to remember that other people often want to help too, but they aren't always sure how. Extending those requests can help those other people in your life feel helpful and involved and feel like they're contributing to your care and to the patient's care. And keep in mind that asking for help includes asking for emotional support too. Sometimes this means simply asking friends for a night out at the movies for a little bit of normalcy, or a phone call to lend a listening ear when you're feeling especially overwhelmed. Asking friends or family to check in with you weekly can help you feel like you're getting the support that you need. Or reach out to a social worker or support group for help managing your feelings. This kind of help can be the most useful to help you sustain and manage your caregiver role. When it comes to resources for caregivers, there are lots of resources out there that can link them both to information and support. And when we're talking about resources, it's also really important to think of the medical team as a good resource. They can answer questions and offer direction, also provide insight about what other patients and caregivers have found helpful. 
Organizations like Cancer Care offer literature and information on topics like managing the practical concerns of a loved one's diagnosis, building a community of support, and coping with the stresses of caregiving. Cancer Care also provides free supportive services like individual counseling and support groups specifically geared at the needs of caregivers. These free services are all provided by licensed master's level social workers. We have an easy to navigate website that you can visit at www.cancercare.org or you can call our toll-free hope line at 1-800-813-4673. Many caregivers find that connecting with others in a similar situation is a really powerful experience that helps them to feel supported and less alone. Resources like support groups such as those offered by Cancer Care can give caregivers some respite and time for themselves, practical tips on how to cope with practical and logistical challenges, a sense of camaraderie and support, and a safe space to explore the emotional impact of caregiving. There are some other caregiver-focused organizations that I'd like to share with you today, too. The Family Caregiver Alliance is an organization that focuses solely on the needs of caregivers. They offer lots of resources on their website, including a whole section on caregiving information.